Good evening, folks. Jeff Salzman here, and welcome to the Daily Evolver Live podcast. I'm very happy to be with you tonight. It's Tuesday night, October 21st, and it sure feels like Halloween here in Boulder. It's dark quite early now. There's a wind. It's raining leaves like rain. Kind of feels like a nice, sweet, closed-in night. I'm here, as always, with Brett Walker, who's managing the call behind the scenes in the kitchen. How you doing, Brett? Yo. What's cooking in the kitchen? Just making some tea, actually. Oh, cool. Yeah, why don't you make me some? It's that kind of night. (laughs) It is that kind of night. I like that. So, um, before we get into the substance of the call, I want to give a shout-out to Integral Life, as I always do, uh, because... Integral Life is the inspiration behind the Daily Evolver podcast, and they've been hosting it for several years, for which I'm very grateful. And Integral Life is the main web portal for cutting-edge integral thinking. It's the home of Ken Wilber's latest podcasts and interviews and so forth, and just a lot of stuff going on at Integral Life, so check it out. Uh, my work can also be found on my personal blog, dailyevolver.com, as well as now iTunes and Stitcher. Okay, in terms of, I'm just looking at the, my list of logistics here. If you want to make any comments or have a question, uh, press 1. Uh, we'll really check in with those more at the end of the call. And I also want to say I really, really enjoy hearing from listeners. And you can reach me at jeff at dailyevolver.com uh, by email. And also, if you go to the site, The Daily Evolver, you can see there's a big orange button. There's, there are several places where you can click and actually leave me a voice mail. And I, I love listening to them. And it really helps me to, um, you know, key into what people are interested in and topics for new calls and whatever. So I encourage you to check in. I really do love hearing from you. So we have a lot we want to get to tonight. Uh, The major story, of course, and this is what has been dominating the media for the last couple weeks, at least in America, and I'm assuming most of the world, is the Ebola outbreak in Africa and its appearance here in the United States and also in Europe, in Spain. So I want to look at what an integral perspective can show us about this new epidemic. And then for the second half of the call, I'm very happy to say that I'm going to be joined by Steve McIntosh, who, in addition to Ken Wilber, is my go-to integral philosopher, from whom I have learned so much. Uh, His new book, The Presence of the Infinite, is just off to the publisher, and it's due out in 2015. Uh, But tonight, Steve and I are going to talk a bit about the work he's doing through his think tank, the Institute for Cultural Evolution, where he and his team are thinking through the impasses of political polarization in American politics. So stay tuned for that. And also, you know, a question period for Steve at the end of the call. All right. So I'd like to uh, start with a question that I got a couple days ago from a listener in South Africa, Zana where she reminds me it's three in the morning when we do this call. She's addressing an issue that I talked about a while back, uh, which was something that I learned from Ken Wilbur, 
uh, that really resonated for me. It's something he was talking to us about when we were developing the latest integral living room. And that is that thoughts are things. And that when we think a thought, or when we have a conversation, which, if we think about it, is just really thinking thoughts in the second person, it's thinking thoughts in a group, uh, that we're actually creating ontological objects in the universe, in the cosmos, that are significant. You know, they add to the human storehouse of wisdom. And so, anyway, Zana writes to me from South Africa. She says, uh, as you well said, to have a higher level of conversation is a contribution to the world. Don't ever minimize that, she's quoting me. And she says, I very much agree with you here. And she says, my question to you is, if thoughts are things, and we both agree on that, how far can our thinking affect our reality? Can it also affect our body, our health? How long will we live? And then she puts in parentheses, I feel that our thoughts can either affect everything or nothing. <laughs> I love that because, you know, I get it. You know, it either works or it doesn't. And I wrote back just a, a, a quick thing saying, I think my short answer is that thoughts affect everything, and we're just beginning to realize it. Like a baby bites his foot and realizes, oh, that's me. And actually, if you think of integral theory as a, a reflection of reality, uh, at least Don Beck and the Spiral Dynamics folks talk about how the movement into second tier, integral consciousness, is actually a recapitulation of the first tier, of, of, of basically the awakening of human consciousness in general. And so in second tier, as we enter integral consciousness, we're basically new babies. We're babies again. And we're waking up to capacities, just as babies are. Babies literally don't know that that foot that's floating in front of them is theirs until they bite it a few times. And that we, too, wake up to new capacities. One of them is probably this realization, and I mean that with a capital R, and this sort of, you know, we, we fully integrate the new capacities of powers of mind. And it, it's a little tricky because it's not our mind anymore in the sense of it's not my Jeff mind, my small Jeff mind, but basically it's more of an access to a bigger mind uh, or an, a bigger heart and a big hands. You know, this is, these words have been arising in the integral community for, uh, you know, a few years now. Big womb, W-O-M-B, from Suzanne Cook-Reuter, which I love so much. It's, you know, this sort of bigger creativity that arises that we're just now getting in touch with. And does that affect everything, as Zana asks? Yes, I think, uh, but not in the ways we expect. It, it doesn't make us stronger. I mean, it, I guess it does in, in a small self-sense. But basically, it gives us access to what is already stronger, which is this ever-present loving intelligence that is the basic nature of the universe. And this is one of the great insights of integral theory is that the universe is arising not just in third person, not just in terms of the stuff and the atoms and the neurons and, the, you know, the material and meat of the universe, but it's also arising in first person in terms of an identity 
that, you know, at first is very tiny, atomic identity, and grows through molecules and cells and organisms and, you know, eventually people, and God knows what's beyond. And then also in second person, which is this irreducible dimension of reality that we would call love. It's just this realization of the oneness, uh, you know, sort of communal nature of the universe where we, you know, connect with each other. And this is a, another dimension of the universe. And so, you know, for me, it's a practical matter. I mean, the theory is one thing. And, you know, I, I really, I'm a post-rational guy, I, 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 but I still need rational proof for claims like this. But in the meantime, I can work with this faith that there's new capacities coming online as a practice. Uh, I think of it as a transrational faith. I think of it as, you know, a hypothesis, if you want to use scientific terms. Let's just act as if, do the experiment, and see what happens. And so this gets me to the first big story of the night, and that is the Ebola crisis. And... What we do as integralists is we sort of start relating to this crisis with a sense that this is a human tragedy and that we want to feel this first and second person dimension of this epidemic, not just see it as a virus, not just see these people running around, not just seeing these breakdowns of civilizations, not just these questions of should we have a quarantine or a flight ban or you know, who was wrong or who was this or who was that, but to actually realize that there's a large group of people that are affected by this that, that we can relate to and actually, if thoughts are things, we can actually help in a way that we may not have realized before, uh, or at least as rationalists we've discounted, and that is that we can actually pray for them, and it matters. And if we look at sort of the non-theistic approach to, quote, pray for them, one of the, there's a whole big category of Buddhist meditations called loving-kindness meditations, uh, or exchanging self for other meditations, where you actually go up against this postmodern cop-out that we hear, so much about, I can't imagine what you're going through. And there's truth to that. I mean, we, we don't want to co-opt other people's experience, pretend that we get it, and then, you know, sort of aggress on them. But the fact is, we actually can relate. And there's a lot of practice. There's a lot of spiritual practice for centuries that show us how to do that. And we can actually bring this into a transrational world by... Um, again, in the case of the non-theistic approach, the, uh, you, um, well, I, th I think of Tonglen meditation, which is the tradition I'm most familiar with, the Tibetan tradition, where you breathe in, you do something very counterintuitive. You imagine the suffering of an individual person. So in this case with Ebola, we imagine the suffering of an African woman who is, has a sick husband has a bunch of kids, the neighbors are afraid, there's, 
you know, all kinds of superstitions. Nobody knows what to do. Should I leave? Should I stay? What do I do? And so we sort of get her in our sights and breathe her in. It's not like we're trying to breathe away her problems. We actually breathe her problems and her sensibility and her pain, her suffering, literally, into our own body. So we breathe it in. And then we breathe out some sort of relief for her. And so we use our own mind bodies as a metabolization machine, if you will, as a practice for breathing in the pain of other people in a very specific way and feeling it as best we can, you know, and actually, which is better than I can't imagine what you're going through. Yes, you can, actually. And you can not only imagine it, you can get in touch with it that a way that ontologically... <laughs> you know, affects the first and second person dimensions of the cosmos. And that's not nothing. And we're just beginning to realize what this is, even though for, you know, again, since the actual religions 2,000 years ago, uh, for sure, and before that, really, we would do prayer for other people. But that got left behind because it was so interpenetrated with the limited mythic view that modernity rightly um, jettisoned it. Um, but it's time to bring it back because that's what Integral does. It brings back the best of all previous stages. So that's, you know, really the first thing we do with this. And, and I always think of something that Claire Graves, who was the, one of the original researchers with Maslow and Piaget and those people on adult development, that Having this sensitivity, and this is what we're doing here, is basically a green or a, a, a postmodern exercise. Uh, we, at least we bring it into that stage of development. And by doing this, by becoming sensitized to the pain of other people, we are then worthy of dealing with it. And until we do that, we aren't. And it just becomes, you know, different kinds of aggression. And that, that this actually has to happen. So, you know, that's one of the things that Integral brings it to it, brings to us. And we may actually, I mean, again, in the, in the um, right-hand quadrants, we may be burning karma, energetic karma, that is a, a real substantial thing. You know, again, I, I, uh, I'm going to need some proof, but as a working hypothesis, this is a very, very juicy practice that, you know, we want to use in all aspects of our life. And I just made a note here from of a, a note I saw in an atheist website where they said, quote, I'll pray for you, you know, I'll pray for you is a line that religious people say to get credit for doing something when in reality they're getting away with doing absolutely nothing. And that's the atheist view of prayer or, you know, loving kindness meditation. And, you know, we have to actually remember that. Because it helps us to not get too hooked into my Tonglin fantasy is actually something that is specific and small self and it's a superpower of mine. It's not. It's a surrender to the greater power. So if you don't want to do that, you can actually join one of the amazing organizations that are, you know, suiting up and 
flocking into West Africa to help. And, you know, it makes me actually feel good about the world when I see the modern response, even, you know, the over-exaggerated fear-mongering of the Western media. You know, I actually see that that, too, is functional. That, too, is right on schedule. You know, it's dealing with something that is actually, you know, powerful in the world. And again, most of the world is in first tier, as, 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 as most, most of us are like, you know, neck deep in first tier. So we get it. And that is fear is still a potent motivator. It's a, it's a clarifier. It's a, a forcer of decisions. It's actually a very creative force in first tier. So, you know, we, we see all of the backlash about the fear and it's doing its thing. It's, it's part of the bigger soup. And, um, you know, <laughs> there's, there's really nobody. I mean, well, there, there are heroic people who try to continue to put it in perspective and, and I appreciate them. Uh, and they're in all, uh, you know, realms, including I think Obama as a president in the political realm. But, you know, for the most part, Everybody gets benefits from hyping it up. The doctors do, the AIDS people do, the, the, the NGOs, the media keeps, keep us riveted, you know, so that they can continue to sell their ads. They keep the eyeballs. Politicians, both at the right and the left, you know, no leader gets points for underestimating dangers. This is just not the human condition, in, particularly in first tier. That's, and, and it's actually not their job. I mean, people can be wrong time and time again uh, in terms of being overly vigilant or over, you know, hyping something that might go wrong. It's like, I think of peak oil. It's like, are you people still talking about peak oil? But yes, they are. And, you know, we, we still pay attention. And it's like, please. But it has a life of its own, and there was a, a wonderful column by David Brooks, and I, you know, I do love this guy, um, a New York Times columnist. And just a, a, a quick little excerpt, he said, it's a lot scarier to follow an event on TV than it is to actually be there covering it. Studies of the Boston Marathon bombing found that people who consume a lot of news media during the first week suffered more stress than people who were actually there. Brooks calls this a sour existential fear. That's a word he used in the column. And he goes on to write, it's a fear you feel when the whole environment seems hostile. You know, our whole world seems hostile. You, can you sort of relate to that in this moment about Ebola, whatever it might be? When things that are supposed to keep you safe, like national borders, the national authorities, they seem porous and ineffective. And there's some menace there that's hard to understand. Now, first of all, I would, you know, sort of argue with the sort of implicit message here that this is something new. I think this is part of development, that human beings are always realizing that the institutions that they thought they could trust are not trustworthy. You know, whether it's the tribal leader or the warlord or the king or the nation, I mean, this is a lesson well taught, and it's, and it's still being taught. You know, I mean, reality is not simple. In a way, like even the, the mistakes of the CDC, which have been so parsed, and the mistakes of the first responders in Africa, um, you know, they're there, that's true. 
uh, and we uh, learn from them, but do we really expect them not to happen? I mean, I saw Jake Tapper on CNN browbeating this poor spokesman for the Dallas hospital. And, you know, this is a big megalopolis hospital. I'm not defending them necessarily. I mean, I know this guy was out there doing the best PR he could. But it was like, you know, Jake Tapper finally got him to admit that, yeah, I guess we let our guard down. We didn't realize that, you know, there having been no Ebola cases in the United States ever, that there could be one. Because there were them in Africa. They, they actually did have some protocols, but they let their guard down. And, you know, this is the way of things. I, I think of my friend who's building a house right now, and he said, everything has to be built twice because everything's wrong the first time. Now, I think he's overstating it, but there's something true to that. And if you think of your own organizations and, you know, businesses and uh, families, who gets it right? I mean, this idea that we're supposed to get it right is, um, you know, it's probably functional. It is functional, but it's a first tier kind of, it's something that we grow out of. So, you know, seeing the warts of the CDC, that and we're talking about the Center for Disease Control here in Atlanta, um, you know, it's funny that, you know, the, the better they get, the more we distrust them. It's, it's amazing. Uh, and it's not that, the, you know, there aren't things to learn. I, and this is one of the other things that we see is that evolution and, you know, through human execution is chaotic and messy. It's also, by, by the way, chaotic and messy all the way down from, you know, humans on down to, you know, atoms. But anyway, we sort of make friends with that uh, as we get into integral consciousness and realize that we're all making it up as we go along. <laughs> Obama's making it up as we go along, as he goes along. Putin's making it up. Everybody's making it up as they go along. And uh, that's the biggest horror of all is that there's actually nobody pulling the strings. <laughs> so we don't have to worry about that. Anyway, so, you know, what's, what's super interesting is to see the, how this is all transformed in, into po not just policy, but politics, because we have an election coming up here in just a few weeks, two or three weeks, in the United States in our midterm elections, which determines the Congress, not the president. So you have, you know, Republicans uh, and conservatives in general, first of all, are, this is something that Integral shows us, and it, and it actually helps us to sort of relax and open our hearts, is that conservatives are just, it appears, genetically more fear-responsive. Uh, there's been, you know, test after test that shows that they are reactive to things that are sort of disgusting or upsetting, like slapping your father or vomit, or whatever it might be, and just fears in general. And you see this in, there was a, um, where is it here? I have the, yeah, ABC News poll. Are you worried about yourself or a family member contracting Ebola? Democrats say 39% say they're worried. Republicans, 47%. So, you know, you see that, whatever it is, eight points difference. And, you know, conservatives in general, they're this sort of one of the, we're going to talk about this with Steve in a, in a minute, about these in, enduring polarities, uh, that conservatives are the people with their foot on the brake, and liberals are the people with their foot on the gas. So, you know, liberals or conservatives are more interested in preserving what we have, and, and, and you know, they naturally fear the other. 
you know, the, the, in, in the case of the, you know, white America, the brown skins from Central America coming up the border, the Arabs, and now this, you know, the deep, dark Africa, Ebola, you know, Obama, Kenya. I mean, it all it just makes perfect sense to them. <laughs> and that's what we're dealing with, you know, and we have people like, you know, Ted Cruz talking about how the CDC is a political uh, you know, basically a political arm of the of the um, Obama administration, and you know these institutions no longer, as I mentioned before, get the kind of sort of reflexive um, uh, uh, respect that they used to get. And um, but you know, I would say just to, to sort of balance things out, and I think it's true. And, and I'm trying to think: is it more or less? But the, the Democrats did this to the Bush administration, too. I mean, there's, this, there's a sense when you're in the opposition that you want to paint the, you know, opposition party that's in power, so the Democrats painting Bush, as, you know, a sense of chaos, of Katrina, of Iraq, of Guantanamo, of, you know, things out of control, the economy. And, uh, you know, it's not that it's not true, but it's that, the job of the opposition is to paint the, um, you know, opposing party who's in power as being completely chaotic and out of control. And so we get this sort of caricature, two caricatures of Obama. One is that he's completely feckless and, and ineffective and can't make a decision and, you know, weakling, which is, you know, the worst thing a leader can be. And the other, that he's a tyrant and he's pulling the strings and he's actually not having a travel ban because he's African and relates to Africa. And the truth is, he actually is. He's making a world-centric decision not to impose a travel ban because he realizes that it would hurt the Western African countries in a way more than it risks uh, infections to America. He's, he's, he, the, the, the unstated policy is he's willing to risk American lives uh, in order to preserve many more lives in Africa. I, I get that decision. It's not a decision he can talk about in so many words. He certainly can't be transparent about that, but that's the decision he's making, and it's driving the conservatives crazy because not being world-centric, they're like, you know, fuck the Africans, you know. I mean, I don't think they even necessarily put it that bluntly. They're just like, hey, wait a second. We have to, you know, protect ourselves. As, you know, even reasonably. Uh, so anyway, this is this sort of enduring polarity that we have in American politics. And Ebola is just another vehicle for it. And that leads me, I think, very nicely into our next um, segment, which is my welcoming of my dear brother and my next door neighbor, actually, <laughs> Steve McIntosh who is um, here with us tonight. Hey, Steve, how you doing? Hi, Jeff. Can you hear me there? Yeah, I hear you good, loud and clear. Great, great. Yeah. Well, I, I could just sort of yell over the fence. Yeah, how's everything? <laughs> yeah, how's everything across the fence? Yeah, so Steve is has started a... I, I mentioned, you know, that Steve's a really, I, I think, one of the two or three top integral philosophers in the world with Ken Wilber, in my opinion. Uh, his book, Integral Consciousness, uh, Evolution's Purpose, the next one, The Presence of the Infinite, every one of them has, has really expanded my 
integral awareness. And so I, I, I'm so grateful to Steve. Uh, but what Steve is also doing and what he's turning his attention to now is uh, a foundation that he has founded a couple of years ago in 2013 called the Institute for Cultural Evolution. And it's a, a think tank. That I'm on the board of directors to, you know, to just put, you know, fairness and media out there uh, with John Mackey of Whole Foods, Carter Phipps, uh, author of The Evolutionaries, Elizabeth DeBold, the integral gender uh, expert, uh, Michael Zimmerman, uh, integral ecology f uh, philosopher up at CU, a very, very cool board of directors, a very cool group of people. And they're really putting down a stake for integral politics. So for those of you who are interested in integral politics and how we can actually bring an integral vision to bear on the political problems of the day, the Institute for Cultural Evolution is doing work that, in my opinion, no one else is doing. It's just really, really, really cutting edge. And they're turning their attention to um, this topic of political polarities. And if we indeed do have, and Steve, correct me if I'm you know, mangling this, but I'll, I'll turn it over to you in a second. No, it's too great. <laughs> but that yeah. we have this enduring polarity of the people with their foot in the brake, the conservatives, and the people with their foot in the gas, the liberals. And this is just part of the makeup of, of the cosmos. And that, you know, it's expressing itself now in a way that is, you know, really gotten us to a lot of stuck points. But there's a way forward. And so maybe I'll just stop there and see how good I did and what you might uh, want to explain to us. Well, sure. And uh, thanks for that very flattering introduction. And again, it's really great to be here with you on uh, The Daily Evolver. So there's a lot of different pieces to what I could talk about uh, in terms of the Institutes for Cultural Evolution's activities. Uh, we've really put it into high gear in the last couple of months. Uh, I finished uh, writing my uh, book, as you mentioned, The Presence of the Infinite, and that's now off to the publisher. And so since that was completed in mid-August, I've turned back to the work of the think tank, and now we have a lot of exciting balls in the air. We started, the, the premise of the think tank is that this evolutionary perspective, or this integral way of seeing, sheds a lot of light on many of the most pressing political problems that faces America and indeed the world, and uh, that there's this pretty good precedent in the culture for ideas to be championed and uh, injected, if you will, into the cultural discourse through think tanks. I mean, no, the term think tank is somewhat unfortunate, but that's a term that the media can understand, yeah. and so we've adopted that. So we started back in 2012 focusing our attention on climate change, because as a culture war issue, the evolution of consciousness and culture sheds a lot of light on what's going on and where progress can be made and you know, what's stopping progress on climate change. But after working for over a year on the climate change campaign, we began to see that uh, political polarization was in some way a kind of a root issue. That is, the, uh, the fact that uh, our government is gridlocked uh, is preventing meaningful action on a whole host of issues, including you know, in, in income inequality, climate change, uh, federal deficits, immigration reform, tax reform, I and mean, anything you could point to yeah. that the government could do a better job on, that, uh, that effort is currently stymied by the fact that uh, the government as a whole is largely gridlock. And that, of course, is partially structural, partially has to do with gerrymandering and the, oh, too much control by the parties and 
And so there's lots of, of structural issues that many of the mainstream pundits are focusing on. But many of them are also beginning to realize that the polarization is also a deeply cultural problem. That is, it's representative of uh, real splits in the electorate. And there's been interesting debates around those who believe that, that Americans aren't really divided deep down, you know, mm-hmm. that, that we've just been sorted by hyper-partisans in the different parties. And then there are those who have a more evolutionary perspective that see, indeed, that there are now three, at least, major worldviews in American culture. And these aren't just differences of policy opinion. They're deep differences in identity, dialectically separated by the structures of history. So we see the polarization as real and uh, representative, but we see that there's a real upside to it. In other words, the way evolution occurs, cultural evolution and you know, all kinds of evolution, is that first there's kind of a differentiation, and that differentiation allows for a higher level of integration. So rather than trying to glue the pieces back together, you know, the thesis and the antithesis, or the left and the right, rather than advocating some kind of centrist compromise, we're advocating uh, further evolution uh, to overcome the polarization, and that takes the form of advocating for a kind of a, a future left and a future right yeah. that represent more evolved positions of this essential polarity, right? I mean, left and right is kind of an outdated way of talking about the political spectrum in America. And in our uh, white paper on the subject, we outline at least four different um, political perspectives that are vying for power within the democracy. But it still makes sense, especially when we're speaking to the larger culture, to talk in terms of the polarity of liberal and conservative, because uh, it, as it turns out, this idea of political polarization lends itself perfectly to talking about polarities as systems of development as is now becoming a, um, a feature of integral philosophy. In other words, the idea of the dialectic. Yeah, but let's look at that because most of us, and this is of course the sort of conventional wisdom in America, is that this political polarization is bad, it's getting worse, it's you know a, a tenable people not only see... Uh, you know, Republicans see Democrats not only as their opposition, but as dangerous to the republic, and vice versa. And so the conventional wisdom is, we're kind of like bad and getting worse. And you're saying that there's actually a sort of a, a process where this migration to the poles gets integrated in a whole new synthesis. And so, right, and the polarity, as you said in, in your setup, is existential or indestructible. It yeah. continues to reappear, right? You see liberal and conservative political opposition in the Roman Empire, right? Yeah. It, it's, it's part of this conservative and progressive uh, orientation is partially um, hardwired into our DNA. However, uh, it does change and evolve. That is, we can see, for example, that the uh, Republican Party in the 19th century was the Progressive Party. Uh, and then eventually it became the more conservative party as things evolved. And so part of our philosophical premise is that this polarity will continue to reappear. And part of the way we can um, break the gridlock or the logjam or whatever you want to call it is by describing how we anticipate both sides evolving um, mm-hmm. without trying to um, diminish the dynamism or eliminate, you know, just have one side win or the other. Part of the theory is that there, there are elements of this natural polarity that are positive-negative, where one side's wrong or in bad faith, 
But then there's another important expression of the way this polarity shows up where it's positive-positive, where both sides kind of need each other. And the great analogy that explains how they can evolve in ways that better integrate the other side without trying to go for a centrist compromise is by seeing the way our, our ideals of masculinity and femininity have evolved over the last 60 years within American culture and elsewhere in the world. Like in the 50s, being a real man, for the most part, it was portrayed in media and thought about in the culture, meant being tough and macho and, and you know, not a sissy and you know, whatever you want to characterize it. It was hyper-masculine. And similarly, uh, the ideals of the culture of femininity in, included being you know, passive and demure and, and uh, you know, oppressed even. And so, of course, a big accomplishment of the emergence of postmodernism in the 60s and 70s, and as it's been assimilated in our culture over the last several decades, has been to evolve our concept of what it means to be a real man or a real woman, right? Ideal femininity now includes being strong and independent. And ideal masculinity also includes being um, emotional and sensitive. Um, and and I, I think few would disagree that uh, although there's plenty of gender problems and plenty of ways we need to go further in, in uh, bringing equality to women and having a more sophisticated and nuanced appreciation of all the different gender positions in, in, uh, in our culture. Mm -hmm. uh, we've evolved yeah. in how we think about what it is to be a real man no, and a real woman. And part of the way we've evolved is we've, we've integrated some of the other side. Yeah. And that's what we're proposing for the left and the right. Wow. The future left integrates some of the wisdom of the right better than it does now yeah. and vice versa. Yeah. And it would just naturally be so. I mean, as we could become, you know, more intelligent and more sophisticated, uh, we'd begin to realize that, wait a minute, some of what they're saying is actually true. And I think we, we see this happening. I, I love a couple of the terms you use in your writing about this, where you talk about the future left will be optimistic postmoderns. So that's me, optimistic postmodern. And then the future right will be progressive libertarians. And actually, I have to say, that's also me. <laughs> but yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, well, that's good. And, yeah, and that's, I mean, you know, I can say a little bit more about that. Something like that. Ideally, we'd like to advance uh, a vision of an integral left and an integral right. But that's a developmental step that's not the adjacent possible of where the political uh, dialogue of the country is right now. So in envisioning our uh, vision of a, a, a more evolved left and a more evolved right, we've sort of staked out positions that are more evolved than the current platform of the Democratic or Republican Party, but not so far beyond where the culture is at the moment that it becomes unrecognizable. So optimistic postmodernists uh, are still pretty green, right? They still have a lot of the, uh, of the values of the postmodern worldview, but they've transcended the anti-modernism and the rejectionism, at least partially transcended it, yeah. and are more optimistic about uh, America's role in the world or you know, business and technology. And you see this attitude among many of the millennials. Yeah. Many of the young people don't have the same kind of loyalties and partisan no. uh, orientation that you see with the boomer generation. No, they're tired I don't think it. these new forms of left and right are going to evolve by themselves. They're going to need you know, leadership. But uh, the fact that we can see nascent forms of these in the millennial generation, those between 18 and 32, yep. is promising that this is a, a real possibility for political evolution. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. And um, so how would you say what you're talking about is different than, uh, you know, centrism or transpartisan? You know, we hear about that or no labels. There's a lot of movement, you know, trying to find the middle 
in the uh, American political scene right now. Uh, how do you see this as being different? Well, first of all, we're not, uh, we're not really advocating uh, for centrism. I mean, bar- bipartisan compromise is certainly good when you can get it. But uh, there have been many uh, organizations, Washington-oriented organizations like No Labels, that have been trying to achieve bipartisan compromise. And again, we don't want to put that down or say that that's completely a waste of time. Mm-hmm. But I think that the, the ensuing years that this strategy has been pursued with significant funding and, and media attention at a national level, it's a failed strategy. Centrism is a failed strategy. And part of the way you can begin to understand why that doesn't work is, is just the physics of it. Like, for example, if you ever tried to play with a magnet and you've tried to, to go back and forth on the magnet and find the middle and try to balance in the middle, it throws you to one side or the other. Mm-hmm. And, and that's even true within... Uh, so one of the things that the centrists point out is that there's been a significant growth in those who register as independent. Right, mm-hmm. so it used to be that most Americans were re- registered either as Democrats or, or Republicans, but now there's this giant, what looks like a middle emerging with all these people registering as independents. But the political scientists who study this stuff very carefully have noted that pretty much every independent, even though they're registered as such, they are reliably partisan to either left or right, yeah. and and most independents are actually more partisan than the less committed members of the party that they <laughs> lean toward. Right, so they're, you know, even though it's a hopeful sign, it's it, when you drill down into the data, it makes it clear that the that centrism is still uh, a, a strategy that's that's not up to the task of overcoming the severe gridlock that's making our dis- democracy dysfunctional. Yeah. So. We are saying, okay, let's let's take a different tact. Let's think in terms of evolution. Let's, let's instead of people thinking in terms of this, these positions being fixed or this being the sign of the inevitable decay of our democracy or our country, we see this as an opening for further evolution. I mean, so the silliness of the hyperpartisanship, in a sense, is signaling that you know it's time for the dialectical turn you know the, the the river has meandered in the floodplain as far as it can go in one direction and the only place it has left to go is to turn and go in the other direction and th- this dialectical movement in history toward a more evolved left and a more evolved right is something that by talking about it today and making this idea visible in the culture uh, we can actually uh, it, it can cause traction in the evolution of people's thinking because they, they don't think about these things as being fixed. We want people to think about cultural evolution as not something that's necessarily only intergenerational, only a long-term thing. As we mm-hmm. see with gay marriage and other issues, sometimes cultural evolution can happen very quickly indeed, and this is what our think tank is focusing on, how right to make on. it happen. Yeah. No, it's, it's terrific, and you're putting a great sort of uh, you know, wedge in, in, in a perfect leverage position, I think, in terms of... Um, you know, bringing this new thinking into the into the mix, and you know, it's it's in, in keeping with what I was talking about at the beginning of the call, which Ken talked about: thoughts are things. And the more we can yeah. talk about this and think about this and influence other people, and so that gets me to so the Institute for Cultural Evolution. You're actually doing a fundraising campaign that uh, kicks off tomorrow. And I want to highlight that because I think you're worthy and I'm on the board. So share with people a little bit about well, how so, you're yeah, actually let me talk about, about We're not just a think tank. We're also, if you'll pardon the cliche, a do tank. I mean, we're not just writing papers and thinking 
uh, integral thoughts. We're also uh, trying to get the culture's attention in all kinds of ways and trying to engage people at, at many different levels. So, uh, for example, one of the things we're doing is holding high-level uh, conferences or, or gatherings where we can influence the influencers. And we just had a very successful uh, um, version of this at Esalen. The Institute for Cultural Evolution partnered with Esalen's think tank, the Center for Theory and Research. And for the last year, we've been planning and kind of curating a group of 25 Illuminaries and thought leaders on the subject of polarization, many of whom have pretty, you know, pretty prominent in the mainstream modernist culture, and we invited them to Esalen for four days, uh, whereby the people who are the insiders can be exposed to some of the ideas of the outsiders. One of the beautiful things about Esalen is that they were there in the early 60s and positioned themselves as as one of the important birthplaces of the progressive postmodern worldview. And now the leaders of Esalen recognize that this integral perspective is, is a similar emergence in history, and they want to position themselves to be the birthplace or one of the birthplaces of that as well. So they've really gotten behind um, uh, evolutionary thinking, and that's why they've invited us to partner with them, um, not just with the polarization conclave, but we're also involved in their conscious capitalism conclave they've been having once a year. So at the, polar, at the Esalen polarization conclave um, two weeks ago, uh, we had mainstream political scientists like Thomas Mann and Norman Ornstein, who write a lot of, uh, do a lot of work with the, uh, the Brookings Institute, American Inter- Enterprise Institute, two mainstream think tanks, and their journalists who do a lot of variety for the Washington Post. They were there, uh, as well as other uh, mainstream political scientists whose names people are unlikely to recognize. But we had a lot of establishment types, and they kind of gave the standard explanation in their presentations about what's going on with polarization. Uh, but then we had Jonathan Haidt. Uh, who is uh, a you know kind of a darling of the TED Talk circuit? He's a, a modernist, but he's a very well-respected public intellectual. His book, The Righteous Mind, uh, brings values to the analysis. So even though he doesn't have a developmental perspective, he gets it almost intuitively that values are behind this. And his presentation, uh, he highlighted our paper. He'd read our paper, Depolarizing the American Mind, on his way to Esalen and loved it and gave us a great endorsement and really you know, spoke highly of it to the crowd, which sort of teed us up for our presentation, uh, Carter Phipps and I. And uh, you know, uh, we, we definitely made a big impact. Many of the people there, not only Jonathan Haidt, but Thomas Mann, uh, the principles of the Breakthrough Institute, uh, the people in the mm-hmm. labels who were represented there, um, and, and many well-known kind of centrist Republicans who were involved uh, in this scene. Um, many of them came up to us afterwards and told us how much they appreciated what we had to say, and many of them were talking in terms of the future left and the future right by the time um, the Esalen Conclave was completed. And one of the things about going to Esalen, it's so beautiful, it's perched on the Big Sur coast south of Monterey, is that being in that environment, in that exquisitely beautiful environment, um, it helps build friendships. It helps yeah. create, uh, uh, you know, c- sort of camaraderie. And, and um, uh, we definitely came away with a sense of greater fellowship among those from all different parts of the spectrum who were um, uh, focusing their work on overcoming polarization. So that was a, a, a big event that we really had a great um, success with. Um, we also have, coming up beginning on Saturday, a series of caucus calls, virtual teleconferences like this one, um, but this, these will be specifically focused on defining and developing and refining our understanding of what the future left and the future right are all about. So we're gonna, uh, we have several hundred people signed up for the call on Saturday. 
Uh, this begins at, um, uh, I think it's uh, Mountain Time at 11 o'clock, 10 a.m. Pacific. It's about an hour and 45-minute call. Carter Phipps and I will be the host, and we'll have the panelists who are kind of representing the integral left or the future left, uh, which will be Elizabeth DeBolt, who's one of the fellows at the think tank, and Terry Patton, who's a good friend of ours and, and has been quite active in integral politics and is a you know thoroughly left-oriented person, but uh, completely uh, is on board with the idea of evolving the left so it moves beyond the postmodern or the, the strict postmodern into a more integral position where it can be more effective. So we're going to have this call, uh, and there will be audience participation and breakout groups which try to take advantage of the Maestro software. Uh, and then uh, several weeks later, we don't have the date set yet, uh, we're going to have a, a caucus call for the future right, um, you know, a more evolved right. And we have several uh, panelists who we're uh, trying to persuade to, to be on that call. And those caucuses uh, you know, may continue. They may evolve into an actual live conference. We don't know where that's going, but we're going to give it a try. So I hope the people who are on this call can register for the call at our website, culturalevolution.org, and join us Saturday morning live and participate in helping us define uh, what the future left uh, will, will really be about. Right on, man. That's really terrific. And the impact you made at Esalen, I mean, that was a, you know, home run. And I am, you know, really thrilled with that. And, and I wonder just, I mean, do you really think this is going to catch on in the mainstream intelligentsia? Well, I mean, we were certainly encouraged to see the modernists respond, thinking that it was a good idea. Um, I mean, and not just complimenting us, but at the end, there were a whole bunch of uh, action items, you know, that were thrown up throughout the conference, and the facilitator, uh, Jay Ogilvie, who's on the board of Esalen, uh, uh, sort of put them all up on uh, flip charts, and, and you could vote. And there was like 30 proposals, action items, that had come out of the various presentations. And he said, people get three votes, you know, you, so you have to prioritize and only vote for three. And a surprising number of these mainstream guys voted for the action item of think in terms of the future left and the future right, you know, analyze uh, uh, issues through that lens, and it will really show you uh, where we can move beyond um, this gridlocked condition that our democracy is in. So the, the, the fact that, that they were willing to vote for that, as opposed to many other excellent ideas, but um, not new ones, ideas that have been floating around for quite some time and haven't yeah. really... Uh, you know, prove themselves yet. But uh, beyond that, we also made alliances, which we think as we're, you know, beating the bushes for uh, connections and networks and influence in this larger marketplace of ideas, uh, we expect that many of the friends that we met at S1 will be, um, you know, helping us along in ways that are, um, you know, uh, can't be fully anticipated at this point. Yeah. Well, like I said, good on you. I should also yeah. mention, if I may, the other activity, you know, so we've, we've got these um, conclaves or conferences we're putting on. We have these caucus calls. We're doing our Indiegogo campaign, and we, we've already got um, you know good start to that, and tomorrow's the official launch. We also have on our website what we call a polarization test, and this is a key element of getting people involved. We, we, I, I conceived of it originally as kind of just a gimmick to get people involved with reading the paper, depolarizing the American mind, you know, where the ideas are really located behind all the campaign. Um, but the polarization test, you rank choice of a variety of values, which is 
easy to see where you fit along the political spectrum, whether you're a conservative, uh, sort of a fiscally conservative modernist, like a libertarian, or a, or a liberal modernist, or if you're a traditionalist uh, or a postmodernist, we, we identify four specific kind of worldviews that are represented along the political spectrum to go beyond just simply left or right. And then once you're diagnosed by the test after you know, choosing which values are your highest priorities, it then suggests ways you can depolarize your own thinking. It has exercises that are accompanied with the test results. And those include, again, ways to get specific about how there is wisdom on the right that can actually improve the effectiveness of, of people, people who are working on the left and vice versa. So, for example, we, we highlight um, you know, the value of diversity, uh, how it can be better integrated with the value of meritocracy, right? the value of being um, ashamed of modernism and the value of loyalty to what is, is good about America. Um, you know, the value of environmental sustainability and the value of economic prosperity. You know, there, there are natural polarities between these values, and it doesn't mean that they can't be harmonized or integrated, but understanding that simply one trumping the other is not progress. Like postmodernists, for example, often view the indestructible polarity of competition and cooperation as a problem to be solved rather than a system to be managed. So the idea is that you know, every situation calls for more cooperation and less competition. But if competition is completely um, uh, stymied, then that results in um, a, a stifling of comparative excellence. It leads to sort of the, the stagnation of value relativism. Competition is very important, yeah. um, but you can't let it take over either. So under, you know, thinking in terms of polarities as systems of development is part of the new thinking that we're trying to bring forward with our polarization campaign. Well, and it's just intrinsically exciting to think in that way uh, for the people, I guess, who are ready for it. And so, you know, again... Uh, I'm really thrilled with what you're doing. I, I don't know anybody who's doing it as well as you guys are. So if anybody wants to support this work, it, go to, what is it uh, for the Indiegogo campaign tomorrow, Steve? What's the website? Yeah, yeah. Tomorrow is the official launch of our Indiegogo campaign. Um, and, of course, it's called Campaign to Depolarize uh, American Politics. The easiest way to get to the Indiegogo page is to just go to culturalevolution.org. We have a mirror page set up and, you know, links all over our site that say, you know, please contribute to our Indiegogo campaign. It's part of the formula. We have to hype it up a bit, so pardon that. <laughs> but if you go to culturalevolution.org um, and you uh, click around, take the polarization test, uh, and you'll see the link to the Indiegogo campaign. And if you can make an affordable contribution, we'd be extremely grateful. We have some perks up there that you can claim, and um, uh, we seem to be off to a good start. Cool. Yeah, right on. All right. So uh, thanks, Steve. I think we have one question. Steve, you willing to hang on a little bit and, and hear what of people course. have to say? Yeah. Brett, we have Mark Evans with us. Yeah, Mark put his hand up earlier, so let's see what he wants to talk about. Yeah, I'm here. Hey, Mark. Hi, Mark. Hey, Jeff. Hi, Brett. Hi, Steve. Um, Jeff, early at the beginning of the call, you said something about the Ebola being a worldwide crisis, which, um, and I'm not sure I'd call it a crisis, since right now it's just two tiny little countries. Obviously, it's a crisis for those countries, but and we have this uh, overreaction by the anti-government, anti-CDC, anti-vaccine 
blue meme that's whipping it up and making it kind of a crisis. And so what I'm wondering is if there's the same problem in other developed countries. And, I'm, you know, I'm, we've got somebody here from Europe, I think, and I'm just wondering if people from Australia or or um, Europe or South Africa, is it considered a crisis there? Can we have a a poll, everybody who's from a developed country other than the U.S.? Can they press one if it's a crisis (laughs) there and two if it's not? I'd welcome uh, anybody to raise their hand if they want to share about how it's being viewed in their country. Well, I think you're right, Mark. I mean, it's is it a crisis? I mean, what compared to the Spanish flu that killed 100 million people in 1918, a much smaller, you know, I mean, a significant percentage of the world population? No, this is very small potatoes. Uh, but it's uh, so it's in that way, you know. And again, as you say, it's it's uh, you know the complete utter tragedy, the end of life and the end of loved ones for people who are involved in that. We have to keep that in mind. You know, that sort of makes us worthy of discussing this in other ways. But it's a crisis in the interiors, in a way. I mean, when you get, you know, 40 plus 50 percent of people saying that they're afraid of being infected, I, I will grant you that this has been whipped up by people for who, in whose, who benefit from it. But nonetheless, it did catch fire. And not everything catches fire. You know, everybody's marketing, but not everybody catches fire. Uh, And so this did. And it's because there's an intelligence to it. There's, uh, I think, an intelligence to um, a fear of pathogens or, you know, infectious agents, um, particularly new ones, you know. And I was actually heartened to see that there was uh, reports out of the White House that uh, they had stopped research in these advanced strains of viruses that are actually hyper-infectious, which they're keeping in laboratories in order to study how viruses become infectious. And there's, you know, certainly value in that. But the idea of creating sort of the atomic bomb of uh, pathogens doesn't seem like a good idea, you know. So anyway, I think there's some intelligence that comes out of the hysteria, but for sure. I mean, it is a, a very, very much in the developed countries a manufactured hysteria. And I see we have uh, a comment from Nikechi. Yeah, hi. Hi, where are you from? I'm from um, the Phoenix here. I live in Phoenix here. How are you doing? Good, how are you? Yeah, I'm so excited to hear what you're saying. And um, I actually wrote a blog on that, even though I didn't really... Uh, posted it. I'm actually I'm from Nigeria and uh, <laughs> and uh, I know that the way we look at things are totally different from how everybody get excited about what's going on now. And I have a theory on that because I wrote a blog on that. I was just trying to make fun of everything. Like um, so, if you don't mind, I can share the blog with yes, you. You please. know, tell me where I can put it so yeah. that you look at it and see how I think. Because you see, the problem is just it's just the way we understand things here. People just make up stuff and, you know, get excited over nothing and then the whole place is so crowded like that. So that's the way they access information. But um, it's also the same way back home, but just like 
not everybody has television. Yeah. Not everybody can access information at the same time. So it wasn't like it's so pronounced the way everybody can get it on iTunes or iPod or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, yeah. So, Nakechi, um, why don't you uh, email me at jeff at dailyevolver.com the link to your blog. Uh, you're actually... I'm having we're having a hard time with your connection, really understanding all of what you're saying. Although we're getting you know a good transmission, just the same. Uh, but we'd love to link to your blog and um, thank you so much for weighing in and uh, you know sharing the view from an African perspective, for heaven's sakes. So I just want to say thank you so much, everybody. It's just wonderful to be with you and um, share this with your friends. Again, we're on IntegralLife.com, DailyEvolver.com, uh, iTunes and Stitcher. Just look for Daily Evolver. And uh, we'll be back next Tuesday night. Thank you so much, Steve McIntosh. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. And um, on with the show. Keep it integral. Till next week, Jeff Salzman signing off.